get into God's Word this morning. And um, uh, uh, let me begin by saying this. If God does not exist, what is morality? If God is not the foundation for right or wrong, where does that come from? Who says something is right or something is wrong? Um, who makes up the laws if God um, hasn't told us what the laws should be? We could make up the laws on our own. And depending on where you live and who the leaders are, um, their laws would apply to you. So depending on what nation or village or tribe you're a part of, the laws would change. Some of them might be beneficial, but some of them might not be beneficial. Some of them might be um, um, really uh, quite detrimental. Uh, and so without God, how do you establish truth? Is it what's best for society? Well, then how do you judge 1932 Nazi Germany, because they thought what they were doing was best for society. Who are you to judge to say that they were wrong? Well, because it's because they hurt people. True, they did. But if there's no God who gives intrinsic value into life, who are you to say that people have any value at all? After all, isn't that what evolution is all about? It's not as much about value as it is about the survival of those who are fittest. And if you're not fittest, you don't survive. Isn't that true? Okay, and so we have to establish some things. And this morning we're going to talk about the elephant in the room, and that is the Supreme, Supreme Court's decision uh, to legalize gay marriage in all, in, in all of our land. And we're going to talk about, I'm not going to focus so much on that as much as I'm going to focus on the foundation. And I'm going to focus on God and what God has to say. And then Jonathan is going to come and share uh, an aspect uh, for it. The reason that we're discussing it is because we believe that we'd like to equip you, that we'd like to give you uh, some, uh, some, uh, some argument into the game because it's, everyone's talking about it and we felt like it was a duty that we had to establish something that, you could, uh, that could give, give you some entry into the discussion at the workplace or wherever it might be. And so anyway, with that, let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, your word is truth. We believe that because you are true. And we thank you for the opportunity that we have to, to bring uh, your word into a cultural context because your word never changes and your word is the same yesterday, today, forever. And we appreciate that because we do not need a God who changes his mind all the time or a word that was applicable yesterday but not applicable today. Uh, so thank you, Jesus, for fulfilling the law and all of its demands that we might have a relationship with God. And so we look to you to speak to our hearts and we give you this moment and time in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Give someone a high five and have a seat if you would. All right. My part of this is entitled Foundations in Marriage. Jonathan's part will be something along the lines of, is it a covenant or is it a contract? Is it a covenant or a contract? So we start with the premise that God exists. I don't want to spend a lot of time. We could do a six-part series on the existence of God, the logical arguments, the philosophical arguments for the existence of God. But there are a few that are pretty interesting, like the cosmological argument. Everybody say cosmological. And that basically says that everything that exists has a cause of its existence. The universe exists. 
Therefore, the universe has a cause of its existence. The universe has a cause of its existence. If it does, then God is that cause. Therefore, God exists. There's the teleological argument that says the universe contains design, like anything. There's design in the universe. Therefore, there must be some intelligent being who designed that. How can you have design without a designer? And there are multiple, multiple arguments for the existence of God. Here's another thing to note, that if we first, if our first premise is that God exists, because you have to start with that, because if you don't have a God, you have chaos, uh, you have martial law. You know, people always say, we want a freedom, we want to live in a place with no laws. Really? Have you, been, have you ever been to a country with no laws? You know what that's called? That's called anarchy. And the ones with the guns tell you what the laws are because they're the ones who are in control. So we believe and we start with the premise that God exists, also that God exists within the entity of himself, in community. That's important. We believe in one God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Okay? All of creation is dependent on something or someone else. God is holy. He's exclusive. He has no needs. He's lacking nothing. He is self-sufficient in who he is, and he is self-sufficient in the community of who he is. The laws of gravity and biology and chemistry and, and physics don't apply to God. He created all of those. He's transcendent. The Bible says in him is life, in him is truth. He not only speaks truth, Jesus is the truth. Uh, he not only gives life, Jesus is life. He not only uh, is love, but he gives love. Uh, he not only shines light, he is light. In fact, light emanates from him. So if we get all of that wrong, then our whole foundation is shaky. And how many of you know if you have a shaky foundation, you have a shaky building? No matter how pretty it is, no matter how much you try to design it and make it look nice, if the foundation isn't right, everything else will be wrong. So that's why I believe that one of the most important scriptures in the Bible is Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And in that, it's almost as if God says, Here is the, here's my revelation to you. And in Genesis chapter 1, he says, now I'm going to break it down. And, and, then, and the very first recorded words, I guess you could say, the very first revelation, the most important thing you could maybe even say that God wants us to know, it's like, okay, Quiet, everyone. God is speaking. Okay, God, what do you want to say to us? What's the message for us? What do you have for us? And here's the first word that God has for us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The very first one. I mean, I mean, let's, let's just set the foundation right now. God created all of this. Because there are going to be those who are going to say that God didn't and God doesn't exist and that everything, you know, what all the different philosophies are. It tells us when, it tells us who, and it tells us what. And it refutes atheism that says there is no God, polytheism that says that there are many gods, evolution that says everything was, was transitioned over billions of years, 
pantheism that says that all is God, materialism that says that matter is all there is and that it, it has always existed, and fatalism that says there is no ultimate purpose. And so the very first sentence of the Bible refutes all of that in one simple, concise statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So our second premise is this, is that he has made all things. He is author, he is creator, he is the designer of the universe. John 1 says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, Jesus was. Through him all things were, were, were made, and without him nothing that, has, that was made has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness but the darkness has not overcome it. One translation says, has not understood it. Psalm 139.13, King David said, You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. See, we believe that God made all things. Yes, we, you could say we believe in a big bang too. God said it and bang, it happened. We believe that. Uh, our atheist friends must answer the question of how something came out of nothing. How order came out of uh, chaos. In incredible chaos. Uh, how one student said to me, my faith was really rocked in college until I took molecular biology. And after molecular biology... I came back to Christ <laughs> because it's impossible for that kind of complexity to come out of nowhere. My eye doctor friend says, Richie, I've studied the eye for 25 years. It is categorically impossible for the eye to have evolved and to have, been cre to have just popped out. It's, it's impossible. That's what he said. Okay? So our third premise is that the purpose of all that he has designed is ultimately for his glory. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the earth. The purpose of the universe is for the glory of God. Okay? And so, let's transition from there and say that marriage in America, I'm not talking about other parts of the world, has definitely taken some hits lately. Okay? And a part of it is because we as a culture have gravitated toward truth that is relative to human desires. That's called humanism. Basically, humanism says if it feels good, do it. If it makes you happy, do it, because the end all of man is happiness. It's feeling good about yourself, which is kind of, if you would agree with me, a little self-gratifying. It's the comment that says, I deserve to be happy. It's the person in the church that says, God would not want me stuck in a crummy marriage because God wants me ultimately happy. God has created all things for his glory. Marriage, therefore, is not for happiness per se. I know, you're thinking, 
what? You're single and you want to be married one day because you want to be happy. Can I just say to you, if you're not happy now, you know the next part? Just, just a comment. It's not for your fulfillment. It's not for your companionship. It's not for sex. Though all of these things can and should be experienced in marriage. Marriage was designed by God to reflect His glory. Turn to your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, the first mention of marriage. This scripture is actually quoted three times in the New Testament. It's the first directives on God's design for marriage. And we're going to look at a problem... A plan and a pattern. A problem, a plan, and a pattern. Well, here's the problem. Eden, we have a problem. Chapter 2, verse 18, it says, Now the Lord God said it is not good, sufficient, or satisfactory that the man should be alone. Everybody say alone. I will make him a helper suitable, adapted, and complementary to him. So the, the first issue, problem, if you could say, in the garden was aloneness. Adam had the perfect life, he had the perfect environment, he had the perfect job, he had rich personal uh, uh, intimacy with his God, uh, the most brilliant genius who ever lived on a planet. And they say today that geniuses use one-tenth of one percent of their total brain ability. Adam may have been a thousand times superior than today's intellectuals. Uh, let me just say that is not a guy you want to play in Scrabble, okay? You don't want to do that. Um, but Adam's five senses were probably tuned to perfection. Apparently, he could communicate with the animals. Everything in the garden was good. We see that seven times up to this point. Um, but then there was a shift. We see something is not good. Man is not complete. He is alone, uh, not disillusioned, not solitude, because solitude is good. He's alone. There's no one who corresponds to him. He's naming all the animals. They're all hooked up, if you would. They're all partnered up. And maybe Adam looks into the, uh, a still water and sees his reflection and looks around, and there's no one corresponding to him. The first problem in the garden. So marriage is designed to solve the first of two problems of the human race. One is aloneness and one is procreation. Adam can't produce more atoms without someone else. Okay? So, um, again, please don't go into marriage expecting someone else to make you happy. Here's the plan. God says, I will make a helper suitable for him. Suitable means a helper corresponding to him, a corresponding helper, corresponding to the image of God in which, in which is like Adam, but different than Adam. Uh, you know that, that, that a man reflects the image of God in one way, and a woman reflects the image of God in another way. So it says in chapter 2, verse 21, here's the plan. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep while the man slept. The Lord God took out one of the man's ribs, closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last, he exclaimed, this one is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken from man. And as someone once said that when Adam woke up from that deep sleep and he saw Eve, that he went, woo, 
And then he went, man, and that's actually where the term woman came from. That's actually not it, but I mean, come on, fellas, if you were in a deep sleep and there was no one else on the whole planet and you woke up and saw Eve, woo, anyway, marriage is an exclusive covenant between a man and a woman. They're very different from each other. Amen? Both men and women reflect the glory of God in different ways. His creative beauty takes two who are the same, yet very different, and he unites them together to reflect his glory. There are ways that a woman will look at things that a man won't understand. There have been times in my marriage where my wife has said something about something, and I just remember thinking to myself, wow, in 10 billion years, I would not have thought that. <laughs> I just wouldn't have. It doesn't make it right or wrong. It's just that we are so, if you're looking for someone, if you're single, you're looking for someone that you're compatible with, forget it. No one's, men and women are not compatible. Let me just take that burden off of you, okay? I mean, if you're looking for someone who's compatible, I'm telling you now, they don't exist. Don't mean you can't get along. Don't mean, you, but there are so, such major differences between the two. I mean, just because you both like rock climbing don't make you compatible. Okay? I mean, that's a part of the deal, but how boring would it be if all of life were all atoms? Because you know what, fellas? It's the easiest thing in the world to connect with another dude. It's the easiest thing in the world for two guys to get along because we are compatible. I never once had a roommate where I had to say, no, man, tell me, how are you really feeling? I don't, I never once ha remember having a conversation with my best friend, Jay, where I said, Jay, I just have to you know, let you know your words really hurt me, bro. <laughs> I just, no, I mean, what you, what's wrong with you, man? What are you talking about? I mean, we, we understand each other. Guys understand guys. Women understand women. And, and, and there's a compatibility there. But God says, no, I want two who are very different, yet the same, to come together and reflect my glory. So here's the pattern. That's the plan. Here's the pattern. Genesis 2.24 says, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one, or they become one flesh. Verse 25 says, now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. Okay? Therefore, a man shall leave. So in the context of God's design for marriage, there is a leaving. Marriage begins with the change of one relationship to solidify another relationship. It doesn't mean that we abandon our mother and our father. In fact, it's our responsibility to take care of our elderly mom and dad. Uh, not necessarily leave geographically, but every other relationship is now subordinate to the marriage relationship. So there's a leaving that has to take place. When a man gets married and a woman gets married, they have to leave some things of the past. They might have to leave some old friendships. They have to leave some old hobbies. They might need to break away from some things that, that, that they used to do that now that they're married, they shouldn't do anymore because there's a leaving that has to take place. And then there's a cleaving that takes place. He shall be cleaved. To, the two shall become one flesh. To cling, to impinge upon, to, to follow hard, to stick with, adhere, to catch by pursuit, to be joined together, to pursue hard. In other words, the cleaving is you're stuck with one another. 
In the days of the old Model T, Henry Ford, uh, uh, it was believed that he had a successful marriage. He was asked, what's the success to your marriage? And he said the same formula for a successful car, stick with one model. (laughs) That's what Henry Ford said. So there's a leaving and there's a cleaving together. There's a two that become one. There's a unity that is expressed. And there is a weaving that takes place. And that takes a lifetime. The two becoming one. Leaving and cleaving uh, is a basis for a lifelong process of unity. Physical union that produces a child is a part of that. God's design was to deal with the aloneness of Adam and to create a scenario where there could be a procreation. Because if it was just Adam, the human race would have stopped. So he brings Eve that, that, that the human race can continue on. There's a weaving of suffering, a weaving of joys. There's a union that takes place of highs and lows. They shall become. It's a lifelong process. It's a killing. It is a becoming. The two shall become one flesh. Not just speaking of sexual union. They become one flesh as they live out a lifetime of being in union together, in covenant with one another and with God. Okay? That's the foundation Okay, there is a God. God exists within the entity of himself. God has created all things, including marriage, and he has created all things for his glory. That's the foundation. Now, the last part that I'm going to say, and then Jonathan is going to come up and give, give some, more, some more feet to what we're talking about. Jesus confirms the biblical model of marriage, the, the, the God's design. Jesus confirms it. Matthew chapter 19, verse 3 says, The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? There were two mains of, trades of thought in the days of Jewish. One was that you could divorce your wife for only certain particular reasons. One was you could divorce your wife for any reason. So they're testing him, trapping him, trying to. And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning, what's he doing? He's going back to the foundation because the foundation is crooked, the house is crooked. So here we are thousands of years later and Jesus is saying, Why are you asking me a question that is so foundational? It was answered back in Genesis chapter 2. Let me refer you back to that. And he says, um, uh, he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Same for Paul the Apostle, Ephesians chapter 5 says this, for husbands... This means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. Verse 28, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies, for a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. We are members of his body. Verse 31, what's Paul the Apostle doing? <clears throat> Let's go back 
to Jesus' words, but let's go back even before then. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 2, Ephesus, in case you guys forgot. This is God's model for marriage. It's his design. This is biblical marriage. He says, as the scriptures say, and when he said, as the scriptures say, everybody knew exactly what he was talking about. They didn't have to pull out their smartphone and go, where is that in the scripture? No. Google it. No. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but is an illustration of the way, the, church, the, the, uh, the way Christ and the church are one. So therefore, marriage is to reflect, covenant marriage, biblical marriage, is to reflect the relationship between Christ and his church being one, sacrificial, loving one another, for God so loved the world that is, a, that is based on the model of Genesis chapter 2. Okay? That's the foundation that's what biblical marriage is. Brother Jonathan, come give us some more wisdom on, uh, on this subject. <clears throat> Let's hear it for Jonathan. Oh. <laughs> okay, because I, I do that every week to, to Richie. For those of you guys who know me, I'm not a pulpit guy. I'm a stool guy. So I'm going to bring my stool on up. So, knowing what Pastor Richie talked about and believing everything that Pastor Richie talked about, what do we do with that? I mean, we all know that two, two Fridays ago, three Fridays ago, um, the U.S. Supreme Court came out with a decision that we all had a reaction to. Some people obviously had a very positive reaction to it. Others had a very negative reaction to it. Um, there were probably a few people who were neutral about it. Um, and I have to tell you, I mean, I had a lot of emotions about it as well. And mine kind of came from two different directions. For some of you who don't know me, not only am I a pastor, but I'm also a lawyer. And so I've been trained in the law, and um, I've read lots of Supreme Court opinions and watched the Supreme Court and, and our legislature and stuff and from a legal perspective, and, and I was like, wow, you know, and then I looked on Facebook, and oh my goodness, yeah, there was some real ugliness, and a lot of it was coming from Christians about that opinion about the decision that was made by the Supreme Court. And I have to admit, it didn't really make me mad. It, it more made me sad, you know? And, and I was wondering, why is that? First, why did it make me sad? I realized it, it made me sad kind of for two reasons, really. One, and actually not in order of importance, but one is because I'm an American, and I love this country. I really do. I mean, I served in the, in the armed forces, and I fly my flag proudly. I don't let it hit the ground, you know. I mean, I believe in reverence of the flag and of our country. And, um, and I'm like, wow, what's happening in our country? Um, but I also, as I thought about that, I realized, you know, that we say that the United States of America is a is a Christian nation. 
Well, it's not. <laughs> um, now, its foundation was, I mean, certainly, arguably, our founding fathers meant for it to have a kind of a Christian path. But the first thing that I realized, I remembered, is that that opinion just a couple of weeks ago of the, of the Supreme Court, and by the way, I use the word opinion, not that it's, oh, it's just their, that's technically what it's called, their decision, um, was not the first time that our country has made a decision that was not in line with God, right? I mean, we could probably think of lots of them, um, especially over the last 40 or 50 years. But that shouldn't surprise us either, should it? I mean, when the end comes, we know there will be one king and one kingdom. And that's it. And no matter how much we love this country, we have to remember that the USA doesn't get a pass on that. And it's prophesied in Scripture that all nations are going to, no nation is going to follow God. And so maybe it shouldn't be that big of a surprise to us when our country doesn't. Will it make us sad? Yeah. Should it make us angry? I don't know. The other perspective I had of that, of this, the other reason that I was like sad and everything was because of like what we're talking about, that I'm not just an American, I'm a Christian. And I mean, in my heart of hearts, I really do want this country to follow the way of God, but knowing that it's not going to, ultimately, that just kind of makes me sad. And, you know, but I want to talk about all these different feelings because they're real and it, it's what's been going on. And, you know, there's been all these discussions. And, and as Pastor Richie said, we're absolutely right. We can't, I mean, what we want to do is like equip you to get into that conversation. Well, if, if you're angry and you're pointing your finger at someone else, how's that conversation going to go? And so my hope is that we can look at this because, you know, in a more calm way and look at what the real repercussions are. Um, but what we need to see is that, as Pastor Richie talked about, I mean, how much is this really going to impact us? the church. And obviously that remains to be seen. But boy, did you all see all these things on Facebook? I mean, Pastor Richie said the day after that, uh, a day or two after that opinion came down, somebody came up to him and said, are you ready to go to jail? And he was like, why, what do I do? <laughs> well, there's that feeling that, you know, our re religious liberties are being um, whittled away a little bit. And that may be the case in certain areas. But what I'm more concerned about, what I want to talk about, is the fact that, you know, many of us had this really, like, angry reaction about this opinion. And that we, we as the church, were kind of pointing our fingers and blaming the Supreme Court or the, the gay rights community 
for, you know, for what happened. And that wasn't their fault. I know you're like, what? I heard uh, a comedian named Brad Stein, a Christian comedian, once say that the heterosexual community has done more damage to the meaning of marriage than, heter- than the homosexual community ever could do. He wasn't being very funny when he said that. But the church has forgotten about that difference between covenant and contract. That the church was the first ones to walk away from God's definition of marriage. The church is the one that has watered it down and made it look like the world's definition. We have made it look like a contract, not a covenant. The world doesn't even know what covenant is. We're supposed to. And yet, we as the church have lumped all marriages together under covenant. I mean, we've said basically, well, you know, if you got married by the just the peace or, you know, through a drive-through or, you know, whatever, or had, God wasn't even mentioned in there. And I'm not putting those down. I mean, that's legal marriage. We have said, well, you're in a covenant now. Really? Let me ask you something. Can any of you point out any place in the Bible to me where someone got into a covenant not knowing it or by mistake? Woke up one day and said, What? I'm in a covenant? Anybody? Nope. Because the foundation of covenant is that it has to be done knowingly and voluntarily. You have to know you're getting into it and nobody can be putting a gun to your head to do it. Right? Otherwise, no covenant. And we need to remember that there's a big difference between covenant and contract. A big difference. In fact, there are so few differences, or so, so fewer similarities, excuse me, there's so, fewer similar, so few similarities that I could probably count them on two fingers. They both need witnesses and they both need an agreement. That's it. There is so many, I mean, as Christians, we should know that there's a huge difference between a, a covenant and contract, shouldn't we? We stand on covenant are we in contract with, with the Lord? Or are we in covenant with him? And when we treat, when we, the church, treat covenants like contracts, we're not changing God's definition of marriage. We can't. But we are not treating it like his definition of marriage. And let me tell you something about the Supreme Court Not one time in that decision, and I did read it, all 103 pages of it. I mean, that was the majority opinion and the dissents. The word covenant isn't mentioned once. 
Who's surprised at that? Anybody surprised that they did not use the word covenant? No. They used the word contract a dozen times, at least. Because, in fact, that's what they were talking about. They were talking about contracts. In fact, early in the opinion, in the majority opinion, they defined marriage. And they said the historical definition of marriage is a voluntary contract between one man and one woman. Are you guys surprised at that? Shouldn't be. You shouldn't be. And when, in that part of the opinion where they were talking about this history, I've got to admit, this part really kind of annoyed me at first, and I went back and went, well, why, why am I annoyed? Is they, were, they quoted two sources for the historical perspective of marriage. Confucius and Cicero. And I was like, really? Really? And then I thought, that's right. Because you're, you're not talking about the same thing. You are not talking about what I believe, what Pastor Richie was just telling us about. You're not talking about that at all. You can't even see that in the historical perspective of the thing you're talking about. Let me tell you something. What the Supreme Court did has nothing to do with the church. It doesn't. In fact, the, the main dissent said that not only did the, the majority opinion not change the biblical definition of marriage, that they couldn't if, even if they wanted to. And we got upset because they changed the definition of something that we don't enter into, that we're not part of. They did something that's part of the world. And yes, contracts are an important part of the world, right? But they are totally different from covenant. Can we remember that? Can we remember when we're talking to our gay friends or to you know, somebody who um, was happy about that opinion that they're talking about something different than what we're talking about? Now, I'm not saying it's lesser. I'm not saying that you know, if you entered into a contract marriage that the church doesn't see you as married because guess what? The state sees you as married and you are but that doesn't automatically make it a covenant. It just doesn't, right? Did those people enter into a covenant? Did they know that they entered into a co- covenant? I mean, and you know that when you have a Christian wedding ceremony, right? You see the covenants happening? Do you know that? Do you remember that? Think about the last time you went to a wedding. That what happened is actually you saw four covenants happening. Four of them. Right, what happens is first, right, the pastor's up front and you have the bride and the groom and they're looking at the pastor. Now the pastor's not God, but he's representing that, you know, representing the church and they're looking at him. And first he says to the groom, do you groom 
take this bride to be your lawfully wedded wife, to have it to hold from this day forward, right? Till death do your part in sickness and health and all that. And he says, yes, I do, right? And then the pastor turns to the, wife and to the bride and says the same thing. Do you, bride, take this groom to be your uh, lawfully wedded wife, to have it to hold from this day forward through sickness and health till death do your part? And the bride says, I do. Well, what just happened there? Two covenants. They each made a covenant with God. Those are what I call vertical covenants. You just saw two vertical covenants happening. Now, if they even just repeated the words or just said, I do, not knowing what that means, can you enter into a covenant without knowing that what you're doing? No. And then what happens? What's the next part of the ceremony? The pastor says to the two, to the husband and the wife, now face each other. Maybe take each other's hands. Now, groom, repeat after me. Look into your bride's eyes and say these words. I, groom, take you, bride, to be my lawfully wedded bride, to have and to hold from this day forward in sickness and health, for better or for worse, till death do us part. And then the pastor says to the bride, okay, now, bride, repeat after me, looking into your, into your groom's eyes. I, bride, take you, uh, groom, to be my lawfully wedded husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, through sickness and health, till death do us part. What's happening? Horizontal covenants. They're each making a covenant with each other. And, and, and you know, in those words, it's not like, as long as you meet your side of the bargain, I'll do mine. Right? Does it say that? No. Because your covenant has nothing to do with whether they fulfill theirs or not. And vice versa, right? That's the church's picture of marriage are those covenants. That is the foundation of biblical marriage. Even though similar or the same words might be said, if you go to the justice of the peace and you know, go through that, do they have the same meaning? Do they have the same uh, weight if you don't know that you're creating a covenant, right? Can you create a covenant without knowing it? No. And so, when, as these marriages start covering, and people say, oh, you know, they use, I see Christians use quote marks, Christian marriage. Well, I'm not using those quotes. It is marriage. It is. As defined by the government. And by the way, yes, the government has the authority to do that. They get to say who goes, gets into a contract and who doesn't. They can tell, the Supreme Court, in fact, can tell the states, you cannot restrict somebody's right to contract because of their sexual orientation. And in fact, the true holding of the Supreme Court opinion was that the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution prohibits the states from refusing to issue a license to a person because of their sexual orientation. Does that sound like it has anything to do with covenant? 
Not to me. And in fact, if you went to the DMV and wanted to get a license and they said, no, I'm sorry, I'm not going to give that to you because of your sexual orientation or the color of your skin, we'd all be up in arms. And I want to back up and apologize to those of you, and I am part of that group, who are sensitive to the fact that the gay rights community has kind of has tried to align itself with the civil rights movement. And some of us are, don't like that. And I, I'm one of those persons. I, I don't. I think that was wrong. Um, uh, the reason I use that analogy, however, is because the majority opinion did it. They, not, not use that example. They put together the civil rights movement along with this. And so I'm not saying I agree with that, but that's their thinking. That's the, the line of their thinking. Okay? Um, and that they very much um, uh, equated this to the Supreme Court opinions from many years ago that said that states, you cannot prevent, you cannot restrict or prohibit interracial marriages. Anybody here disagree with that opinion? I would think not. If you do, I'm sure you probably wouldn't admit it. Um, but, right, I mean... That was a good opinion, right? You know, when the Supreme Court said, states, you can't stop two people from marrying. You can't refuse to issue a marriage license to two people because they have different color skin. And what happened in that majority opinion, they basically said, how is this different? Now, the dissent said there's a big difference. Okay? Uh, The main dissent said there's a huge difference. Because if you ask somebody on the street what the definition of marriage is, they would say it was the union of a man and a woman. They wouldn't say it's a man and a woman of the same color, of the same race. And so you're not messing with the true definition of marriage. But truthfully, the Supreme Court can do that. I've had lots of people ask me questions about well, didn't they exceed their jurisdiction, their authority? The short answer to that is they get to say what their level of, the amount of their jurisdiction is. So, no. Now, that's kind of on the legal side of things, but the bottom line is that I had said to several people, I bet that if you, if I asked 10 Christians, what's the definition of marriage? I bet at least nine of them would say, well, it's between a man and a woman, or one man and one woman. And my response would be, that's not a definition. That's an application. That's not a definition. The definition of biblical marriage is that it is a covenant between one man and one woman. And we as the church, again, have forgot, we've so focused on that second part, right, on the application of it. And I'm not saying that that's wrong, I, you know, that we should get rid of that. It's, it is, there's two parts to that, um, because God has said, as Pastor Richie was saying, he's not entering to con- covenants with people of the same sex in that, you know, that type of covenant. Um, but 
we as the church have forgotten. We've got so focused on the man and, you know, one man and one woman part that we've completely forgotten the, the covenant part. And I am not pointing my fingers at folks. I mean, I mean, I've been divorced. Many of us have. And we've done that and we've um, taken, done other things to, for us to agree with the world's definition of marriage. Right? The last thing I want to say is that, yeah, I mean, why do I not put those little, you know, quote marks around marriage when I'm talking about gay marriage? Because I think, truthfully, I think the, the, um, the confusion is that we're using the same word. Okay? They're using marriage, and we're using marriage for two totally different things, right? But we shouldn't be surprised at that either. In fact, it's not a first for us, is it? Can you all think of another word that Christians use, that the, the world uses also and means something totally different? How about love? Love to the Christian is a cross, is an action of what Jesus Christ did. Scripture says God is love. It is a person. It is, it, God is the personification of love. The world doesn't talk about it in those terms. What about joy or hope? Don't we have different meanings, different definitions of those words than the world has? Why are we so shocked when they use the same word for marriage or the same word and mean something totally different? Shouldn't shock us. Now, it might confuse us, right? We need to remember, okay, you're talking, when you use that word marriage, you're talking contract. When I talk marriage, I'm talking covenant. Now, there's a point for discussion, right? That we can, I mean, the gospel is covenant, I mean, talk about an opportunity to talk to folks about that. We have that common ground. We at least have that common word. So I just want to close by saying that, first of all, please do not hear me to say that, you know, if you went, you know, went on the strip and, you know, had a marriage ceremony there that you're lesser, we don't see you as being married, right? Please do not hear that. What I would ask you to do is to search your heart, regardless of what, where you had the ceremony or who officiated at it. Were you entering into a covenant with God and with your spouse at the time? Were you? And you know what? And if, you're, if you weren't, if you're sure you weren't, or you're not sure, Cool. Pastor Richie and I will open up our schedules to talk to you about that. Come on in, you know, with a couple or, or just one of you, you know, and we will talk to you about that. And, and, um, and you know what? And if you really think, oh, gosh, I, I entered into a contract, but I want it to be a covenant, let's talk about that and let's do, let's do it. We will be more than happy to do covenant ceremonies, recommitment Maybe some of you knew you went into a covenant, and it's time to recommit to that. Wow, what a witness to the world would that be 
if all the Christians in response to the Supreme Court said, I am entering into a covenant, I am reaffirming my, the fact that I went into a covenant, and we are going to, I am going to marry in covenant my spouse. That's what I'm going to do in re- relation to this. So we would love to do that. We would love to be part of that with you. Um, also, uh, as part of what we're going to do, Pastor Richie and I are committing to you. We are only going to officiate at covenant ceremonies. That's it. That's what we're going to do. We are going to only officiate at ceremonies where we know the people understand what covenant is and that they are intentionally entering into it. Now, just to... Don't think we've ordered anything down. I mean, the Foursquare Church actually has uh, come up the day, I think it was the day after the opinion came out, Glenn Burris, who's the president of the International Foursquare Church, also the chairman of the board of the you know, International Church, came up with, a, sent all the pastors a, a, uh, a response, the official Foursquare response. And it's out there if you want a copy of it, want to take a look at it. But let me just read something to you. Um, he said that um, marriage... First of all, he said, Foursquare churches understand marriage to be a biblical covenant, thank you, Lord, between a man and a woman. Therefore, Foursquare ministers are authorized to solemnize marriages only between a man and a woman. Okay? So, there's no wiggle room on that. Okay? That's, we are in, they are in our chain of command. Okay? So, not to think that that's where we were, anything's headed, but we've been given our marching orders regarding that. But I'm looking at both parts of that, that it's a biblical covenant. And so that's the types of marriages, the types of weddings that Pastor Richie and I are going to do. And that's it. Okay. Um, The other thing that we want to offer to you all is um, this Wednesday, we have Wednesday night church, you know, um, every Wednesday at 630. And we're going to open it up to question and answers. Okay. I'll kind of have my lawyer hat on a little bit more if you want, if you have some of those questions but also have my pastor hat on too. And Pastor Rich, you'll be there as well. But if you have, really have questions about all that and what are the maybe implications, what, you know, what the reasonable implications? Am I worried that Pastor Rich or I are going to jail? No. You know, that people are going to be marrying goats? No. Or even, I mean, one of the things, just real quick to end up, is that one of the... Uh, things that I saw on Facebook. Oh, you know, now um, uh, pedophiles are going to start marrying little children. Likelihood of that, really, really small. In fact, I would say pretty much zero. A whole different line of legal thinking deals with children. Um, And lastly, um, that um, the other, you know, I'll just tell you real quickly what I think is the most likely like bad case scenario, right? Worst case scenario kind of thing in this regard that affects the church is that the county, right, who issues, uh, who authorizes people to sign marriage licenses like they have Pastor Richie and me could say, they're part of the state, say, well, if you are not willing to do a same-sex marriage, then your authority your, um, to sign marriage licenses is revoked. And you know what Pastor Richie and I would say to that? So what? 
In fact, you know that little certificate you gave me? I'll send it back to you in a thousand pieces. Because do you think that will stop us from doing covenant ceremonies? No, because they have nothing to do with that. Now, what what that would cause is it would be a two-step process for the couple, right? We would do our covenant ceremony and say, listen, if now if you want the contract um, benefits, the contractual benefits of being married, right, like tax status and insurance and uh, uh, rules of succession regarding like your will and stuff like that, well, go to the courthouse, sign the papers, do the little contract stuff, let it get filed in court like it needs to. Cool. Go do it. I just can't sign it for you. So what? Because it has nothing to do, the two have nothing to do with each other. And that's what I want to leave you with, is that I hope that, that, that this helps calm our nerves about what happened. I'm not saying it was a good thing, but it's just a different thing. So, join me. Let's pray for our country. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do love this country. And our hearts break when we see that it's not following you. Because we know what scripture says about that. Lord, but forgive us for muddying your definition of marriage, Lord, that we need to be forgiven. We need to repent for what we have done to the definition of marriage way before we should be pointing our fingers at anybody else. Lord, you are the Lord of this country. You are the God of this country, Lord, and we, we beg you to draw our leaders back to you. Lord, draw your churches back to you. Draw us all back to you. In Jesus' name, amen.